Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 5 today. Daniel chapter 5. When we come to Daniel chapter 5, we find in verse 1 that King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. That's a strange little statement there, but basically all it's saying is is that he was up front and he was leading the party. All right, he was, the, he, was, he was leading the party, and that's what it's telling us. Now, right away, as we open up Daniel chapter 5, we find this new name, one that we've not yet seen, King Belshazzar. And because there's a new sheriff in town, as they say, we want to get a little bit of a, a, a caught up on the context of what's been going on. We start with this. It's been 70 years since Daniel 1. So go all the way back to Daniel 1 when we started there, and 70 years have now passed. Nebuchadnezzar, who was king, he ruled for 43 years, and he died in 562 B.C. According to Barossus, a Hellenistic-era Babylonian writer, astronomer, and priest of Bel-Marduk, who was a pagan god uh, there in uh, uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evel These are tough. Uh, Muradak ruled for two years. So Nebuchadnezzar falls off. His son, Evel Muradak, he comes up, he rules for two years, and then he was assassinated by a man named Neraglasser. All right? Neraglasser then took the throne and he ruled for four years before he died. And his son, now this one's really tough, Labor Oso Archad. <laughs> if you can do better, please send me a tape of it and I will uh, stand corrected. He ruled for nine months. He was really just a young man, probably between 10 and 13 when he took the throne. You know, those kind of things happened back then. And so uh, he lasted for nine months and he was beaten to death by a group of conspirators. One of the conspirators' name was Nabonidus, and he was appointed by the other conspirators to become king over Babylon, and he reigned for 17 years before he was taken captive by Cyrus the Persian and exiled then to Karamina until his death. Now, at this point, as we're running down history, uh, in this time we find that with Cyrus the Persian coming in and taking uh, Nebuchadnezzar captive, the chest and arms of silver from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember he was the head of gold, and then the chest and arms of silver was a different kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Well, at this point now in history, the Medo-Persian empire is fully in control of what had been Babylon. Now, as I went down that list of kings, which one was absent? We did not see Belshazzar's name mentioned, did we? No, we did not. And this has led critics of the Bible, and specifically of the book of Daniel, to claim, years ago anyway, 
that Daniel was fraudulent, that it was not uh, a canonical book, and that the evidence is right there, at least one part of evidence, in that it's talking about this King Belshazzar, but he doesn't, ex- he doesn't exist in history. These other people existed, but he doesn't exist. Obviously, there's a problem, and so they uh, beat that drum, so to speak, until 1881, when Hormod Rassum, Ras- uh, a, a historian, an archaeologist, discovered what has been com- become known as the Nabonidus cylinder. And there should be a picture of that there on the screen. And when they uncovered this cylinder that has this writing on it, there was the record of Belshazzar. Historians tell us that Belshazzar was either the son or the grandson, we're not quite clear, of Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus Uh, had married either Nebuchadnezzar, one of his widows, or had married his daughter, thus making him the stepfather of Belshazzar. Either way, Belshazzar became a co-regent with Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar focused on Babylon the city, which was the last to fall when Cyrus the Persian invaded Babylon the nation. And so that's kind of the big picture of what's happening as we come to Daniel chapter 5. You know, one of the reasons I'm bringing this stuff out is because what you read in the Bible is not a fairy tale. It's not once upon a time. It's once in time, okay? These are historical facts. It cannot be denied. And it just, again, lends credibility to the fact that what we're reading in Scripture is rooted in real time. Amen? And that's important for us to know. Now, with that big picture foundation laid, I want us to narrow the picture down. And I want us to see what is immediately going on as Belshazzar is partying in the palace. So Cyrus, as I said had taken Nebuchadnezzar captive, and he had now captured all of the nation of Babylon that lay outside of the city walls of Babylon the city. And as we begin to read and we see this party that's going on and the handwriting on the wall and all the rest of it, Cyrus and his army is literally outside the city. They are at the wall, all right? And, uh, and that's what is... Uh, taking place as we read this chapter. Now, I think a a logical question would be, if that's the case, if Cyrus has taken the nation and all that's left is the city of Babylon, why in the world would Belshazzar be in there throwing a drunken party? And uh, that's a great question, and here's the answer. According to the Greek historian, historian Herodotus, Babylon the city was considered an impregnable fortress. Babylon, the city, occupied 14 square miles. The outer walls were 87 feet thick, and they stood 350 feet high, sporting 100 bronze gates. There was an inner wall that stood around the city with a water moat between that massive structure and the inner wall. So you can see We have no airplanes, helicopters, what have you, no modern machinery. This is not an easy place to get into if they want to keep you out. Uh, Atop of the 350 feet foot high walls stood a series of towers 
that continued another 100 feet into the air. So they were able at 450 feet to see anything that was coming long before it even got close, okay? So these are reasons why they considered the city to be so impregnable. Also, water. They had the uh, Euphrates River flowed literally through the center of the city. And so plenty of water that replenishes itself. And they had planned and stored enough food so that they could outlast a siege for at least two years, if not longer. And so I guess Belshazzar felt pretty confident that while things may not be great outside of the wall, uh, things are okay in here. And perhaps by showing that I'm not too concerned about it by getting drunk and having a party, it may send a message to them that we're not really all that concerned. Of course, foolish, right? Stupid, right? But nonetheless, that's probably what was going on in his mind, at least in part. So that's the context. That is the picture as we begin to read Daniel chapter 5. Let's pick up with verse 2. And I've, I've kind of tried to narrow this down a little bit because it is long. So I'm not taking out, taking out anything that's important. You can go back and read the whole chapter. I would encourage you to do that. So verse 2. Belshazzar, they're in there having a party, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. They brought in the golden vessels. And drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So this is happening. Immediately, in the midst of all of this, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. You know, again, those details mean nothing to you and me. We have no idea where the lampstand stood. Why do we need to know that? Well, I really don't know that we need to know that, but what it is, it's the details are telling us this is a factual account. If it wasn't, we wouldn't need that stuff. Let's just get to the bottom line. But these details show us that this is, this is, this is real uh, history. And so, opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, <laughs> and his thoughts alarmed him, you think? And his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. <laughs> one, one commentator that I was reading uh, said that really uh, a better understanding of his limbs gave way was that his bowels gave way. <laughs> I know that's not pretty, but lunch is still an hour away, so we should be able to get over it uh, by then. But wow, <laughs> I, I can imagine. <laughs> So the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Because Nebuchadnezzar was number one, he was number two, and he had only the ability to give uh, number three. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known uh, to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed again, and his lords were perplexed. Verse 10, the queen, now the queen here is not his wife. 
I, I could go into the explanation of how we know this, but I, I just don't have time for that. So I'm just going to tell you, it's not his wife. This is either his mother or his grandmother, depending on what his relationship was actually to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so she comes in, and uh, she comes into the banqueting hall and declares, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. They're there, honey. It'll be okay. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods are found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, again, his father or grandfather, we don't know because in, um, both in Hebrew and Chaldee in those days, there was no word for grandfather. If you were going to speak about a grandfather, it was father, father's father. You know, and so uh, we're not quite sure about that. But anyway, your father, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now, Daniel is in his 80s at this point. How many 80-year-olds do we have who are proud of it? Would you raise your hand? Got a few. Uh-huh. Okay. So there you go. You're being called in. All right. Are you up to the task? Um, so then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods or that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, could not show the interpretation of the matter, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a, a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that uh, he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys." Okay, we'll go on. Uh, he, he, he was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whomever he will. And this, and you, excuse me, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He wasn't ignorant. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you have 
And, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Not that that's going to matter, because the kingdom is only going to last a few more hours. That night, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, for those of you who look into history, let me just say this note before I pray. This Darius the Mede is not the same Darius who was a Persian ruler who ruled the empire from 522 to 486 B.C. That's a different one, a fame, more famous one. Uh, actually, uh, it is believed that this Darius the Mede is actually Cyrus who took the, the land and also took the city because the, the word Darius is not necessarily a name, it is a title, and the title is Royal One. And the age and all the other things match up perfectly with uh, Cyrus. Uh, also, Cyrus, his father was Persian, that's why he was called the Persian, but history tells us that his mother was the daughter of a Median king, so he actually split the fence both ways. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get into this chapter and talk about its contents. And Father, I pray that you will use this today to inform us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to instruct us in the things that we need to know. May we be sensitive to your spirit and willing to um, yield to him in whatever way he may prompt us. May your name be lifted up as we sang and may people be benefited from this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We find in verses 2 through 4, royal contempt for the Most High God. I'm going to jump right into truth point number one today. And here we go. Let's follow it carefully. Unless God works directly with a pagan. Now let's define pagan. A pagan is one who is dead in their trespasses and sins. Okay, you Christians were once dead in your trespasses and sins. I know you may not like it, but the truth is you once were a pagan. And anybody that you know in your life, no matter who they are, if they are dead in their trespasses and sins, they are a pagan. All right. So unless God works directly with a pagan, opening their eyes to sin and the need to humble themselves in faith filled repentance. They will default to a position of contempt for God because they do not acknowledge His power, wisdom, authority, or sovereignty. Let's stop there. Do not change the slide just yet. I just want to ask you to participate here. What do you think? Are there more Christians or pagans in the United States? More Christians or pagans in the world? Uh-huh. I agree with you 100%. And that's why our world is falling apart like it is. Okay? 
And that leads me to the second point. The reason the world is out of control, running from God and His righteousness as fast as it can, is because humanity is spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. So when you're sitting around at your little gatherings and you're having your political talks and all the rest that goes on at those kinds of things, and you make the statement, I just don't understand why things are the way they are. Well, right there is the reason they are the way that they are. Because I don't care how generally moral you may be. And there are a lot of pagans who are generally moral. In fact, I'm sad to say that you might find that some pagans may be for a while more moral than their counterpart Christians who are still struggling with certain things, okay? But it doesn't matter how moral they may be or how, what kind of patriot they may be. The bottom line is they are spiritually dead and therefore they are going to default to a position that ultimately comes out in their actions that is contemptuous of God Almighty. Now I want to explain how all this happened. Many of you know, but let's just talk about it for those who don't. We go all the way back to Genesis and we find that Adam and Eve's rebellion against God took away their spiritual life. They died immediately spiritually. And this resulted in their offspring, which is the entire human population, inheriting their spiritual deadness. And as we inherited their spiritual deadness, it rendered us all incapable of God's righteousness and destined us to pursue unrighteousness as the natural course of life. To pursue that which is ungodly comes natural to us. Can I get an amen on that? It is a fact. We don't have to be taught. We don't have to even be indoctrinated. Now, we might have to be indoctrinated to get to the farther reaches of it all, but we're all predisposed to hold God into contempt and to make ourselves out to be God as we run our own lives without any consideration of Him. That is why things are the way they are. Truth point number two. We have heard it said that something is the exception and not the rule. We've all heard that, right? When it comes to spiritual matters, unrighteousness is the rule and righteousness is the exception. Nebuchadnezzar became a perfect example of the rule becoming the exception because God had targeted him for a change of heart. As we have seen over these past messages, God supernaturally worked in Nebuchadnezzar's life and we find him coming out of paganism into the light and worship of the one true God. But Belshazzar, on the other hand, he remained the rule because he rejected the spiritual light planted in Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Daniel said, you knew what happened. And the light that was planted in Daniel, he, he rejected that. And so he secured himself in the darkness of the paganism in which he lived. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar's life came to a close with him publicly declaring the God of Daniel, Yahweh, to be the Most High God. While Belshazzar's life came to a close, mocking Yahweh, desecrating the sacred vessels that had been taken from his temple. Now, the point which I know you're all looking for, right? The point to be made here is this. The unredeemed live in all manner of sin because they are spiritually dead. It's what spiritually dead people do. You can't really expect anything different from them. 
It's who they are. We should not be shocked when the spiritually dead do wicked things. Shocked when a professing brother or sister in Christ does wicked things? Yes, because they can do better. But those who are still in the grip of lostness, they do what they do because it's who they are. And listen to this to me. Listen to this. I wish I had more time to go into this a little bit further, but catch this, that those who are still lost cannot be trained to be what they are not. You know, some Christian ministries, I'm going to take just a moment. Some Christian ministries really, the way they're set up and the things that they do are basically attempting to to change the behaviors, to make people, make sinners more moral, make them better people. And, 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 And there's a point at which that can be a good thing if you're working with believers. But if you're working with folks who do not understand what it means to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to have the Holy Spirit residing in their heart, you can't train them because it's not a flesh thing. It's a spirit thing. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not going to be able to transform. You might be able to do some good things and stop doing some bad things for a while, but just turn the page, peel the onion, there's another layer, and it's all coming back. Okay, so the unredeemed live in all manner of sin because they are spiritually dead. They cannot be trained to be what they are not. The only way the spiritually dead can attain godly righteousness, catch this now, folks, is through a radical, miraculous transformation that comes through the ministry of God's Holy Spirit in conjunction with God's inerrant word through a faith-filled response that comes as a gift from God himself. That is the only way change happens. So if we wonder why Belshazzar or any other sinner does what they do, it's rooted in the fact that they are spiritually dead. And if any of us are on a different trajectory, it's because God's grace has found its home in us, giving us spiritual life, empowering us to grow in His righteousness. Otherwise, we all will live in contempt for God, just like Belshazzar did. Well, verses 5 through 9. As we've said, Belshazzar was spiritually dead, and so he was not responding to the light available to him. So there came a day of reckoning when the finger of God made an appearance with a message of judgment. You know, there are several places in the Scripture where the finger of God The term the finger of God appears. Let's look at them. Exodus chapter 8 verse 19 speaks of the plagues that God sent upon Egypt and records the comments of Pharaoh's magicians. And what did they say? They said to him, this is the finger of God. These plagues, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. Judgment fell. Exodus chapter 31 verse 18 says, and he, that is the Lord, gave to Moses The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Here we find the finger of God uh, giving the Ten Commandments, instructions for living. Uh, Psalm chapter 8 verse 3 testifies, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. Here we see the finger of God being associated with creation. i got to stop, i got to stop, i got to stop, i got to stop. This wasn't in my notes, but i got to stop. See, okay, so God doesn't actually have a finger. Now, some people thought so, but no, no, no. That, that's, what is that called? That's called a, um, a, a what? 
Thank you, anthropomorphism. It's a way of taking our human characteristics and applying them to God, who is spirit, so that we can grasp something. Now, God the Son has a finger because he took on flesh, but God the Father does not. Anyway, it's an anthropomorphism. Thank you, sir. Anyway, somebody give that guy a promotion. Uh, and here we see his power in creation. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus said, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We see the finger of God being associated with power over the spirit realm. And then John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11, which is too long to read. I'm just going to quickly summarize it. We find how God the Son used his finger. Remember when he bowed down and wrote in the sand? Um, he... Uh, used his finger to reveal the sin sinful secrets of men's heart and brought grace to a wayward woman, which shows his omniscience and his being the Savior. Truth point number three, just a summation of these things. The finger of God displays God's omnipotence, bringing creation to be where creation was not. The finger of God displays God's omniscient wisdom, giving instruction for holy living. The finger of God displays God's justice, bringing judgment on the unrepentant. The finger of God displays God's grace that defeats sin and transforms the human heart. I ask all of you, I ask those who are online, I ask those who are out in the Mission Cafe, how has the finger of God touched your life? Think about that. Verses 10 through 23. So we find that Belshazzar is terrified, like, and, and rightly so. And so he goes seeking help from any source. And so what does he do? He does what they all do. He turns to his enchanters and his Chaldeans and his astrologers. And he does what any pagan-minded person would do. He, he tries to throw riches and power and position at them. If you can do this for me, I will make your life awesome. I need you to, I need you to ease my troubled mind. Well, they couldn't do it. And as the news of the event traveled throughout the palace, as we've said, his mother, his grandmother came to him with the name of the only man in Babylon who could handle the task, and that was Daniel. And here we see in the text Daniel's character. Daniel's character. He responds to Belshazzar's office, offer of money and power, telling the king he can keep his gifts. I don't want your money. I don't want your gold chain. I don't want your power and position. Uh, and I see in this, uh, Daniel is making a statement that he could not be bought. He was a servant of the Most High God, and as such, he was more than happy to give Daniel's message to Belshazzar. But before delivering God's message, uh, Daniel reminds him of the historical and also the present context in which the message is being sent. As we go through those verses, first, he reminds Belshazzar of his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, how he was given a kingdom that had power and glory, and that this came from the God of the Jews, Yahweh. He governed over the known world. But when pride reached its apex in his life, Yahweh humbled him to the level of a beast until he came to see that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind. Second, Daniel tells Belshazzar, you knew this. You knew about this. This is not new news to you. You saw the example. And yet... Despite seeing what Yahweh did to your father or grandfather, you have set your heart against Yahweh, even to the point of defiling the vessels of gold that were taken from his temple. 
And so you have praised the gods of gold and silver and all that rest of that, but the God, he said, who gives you breath, who controls your destiny, Belshazzar, you have not worshipped him but blasphemed him. And I want to just say something to you. Are you aware that the God of heaven holds your breath in his hand? Are you aware that your destiny is under his control? Belshazzar didn't get it. It's wise if we do. So this little part is the context in which Belshazzar is informed. The judgment of God is coming upon you because. And you know what? That reminds me of something we find in Revelation chapter 20. It's called the great white throne judgment. We'll get there some year once we start Revelation. The great white throne judgment is a judgment where everyone who has ever lived who rejected Yahweh and his Christ, they will stand before him to be judged. And Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 tells us that before the judgment is carried out, the context for their judgment will be revealed. Let's look at it. Revelation 20 verse 12, John says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, notice, according to what they had done. Now, I've got a three-part truth point, and I want to go slow, and I want to warn you at the beginning not to jump to conclusions. It'll resolve itself as we go forward. Truth point number four, the dividing line between those receiving eternal judgment versus eternal life comes down to what's been done and what's not been done in their lifetime. Both groups have done wrong in God's sight, and both deserve eternal judgment. Part two, those receiving eternal judgment do so because they did not respond in humble, repentant faith to Jesus Christ. And those receiving eternal life do so because by God's grace, they responded in humility to the gift of repentant faith in Jesus Christ, who Jesus the Christ. So the dividing line, I want to stop there. I'm running out of time because I keep stopping. The dividing line between those who will inherit the joys of heaven and those who will spend eternity in hell is not based upon how sinful their lives were. People don't go to hell because they committed a whole bunch of sins. If that were the case, all of us would be there. People go to hell because they rejected the revelation that God provided, the light that he provided in his Messiah. That's why they go to hell. And if anyone goes to heaven or makes it into the presence of God, it's not because they became holy on their own. It's because they did respond to the light that was given to them. And they embraced the Lord uh, God's Messiah and they worshiped him. That's the line. Jesus the Christ. And listen to me, friends, that is why, that is why the world cannot stand for those who embrace Jesus and teach his gospel. Because it becomes a clear-cut line. And Christians stand on that line because it's the revelation that God has given us. All the other religions of the world, you can mix and match however you like. And basically, people don't care. But when it comes down to what is true, that gets in people's face. And it becomes a problem even when you present it lovingly and caringly and, 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 and whimsically, Jesus is the line, and our response to him determines it all. Belshazzar 
He knew the gift. He knew of God's gift of repentance and faith through the dealings that God had with Nebuchadnezzar. But we find that he chose a different path based on pride, self-will, and it cost him his kingdom. It cost him his life. It cost him his soul. Verse 24 through 28, God's message was brief and to the point. You say, Pastor, maybe you can learn something from that. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Truth point number five. God has numbered our days. Job 14, 5 is one of the verses of Scripture that clearly points out that God knows the number of our days individually. Furthermore, God has weighed humanity in the balance and finds all lacking. Romans 3.23, for all of sin comes short of the glory of God. The final verdict falls on Christ's death for sin, resurrection to to new life, and our response to his invitation to call on his name in faith-filled repentance, Romans 10, 9, and 10, and 13. Daniel, Daniel was chosen by God to bring his message, to bring God's message to both royalty and commoners. Christian, God has chosen you, every single one of you, to be his ambassador to the nation, meaning this, his ambassador to the people groups. We don't have to leave Iowa, do we, to encounter the people groups of the world. Now, we do, and that's good, and that's biblical. All I'm trying to say is, is that you don't have to. The world comes to us, and we have an opportunity through the various aspects of life. And our job, Christian, is to, as God opens the door and makes a way, to disciple sinners to faith in Christ, and then to disciple the saved to increasing maturity in Christ. We find in the text that Daniel, throughout was obedient. And so my question is for us, where do we stand? Where do we stand? Because we've received the gift of God's grace and we've been commissioned to share his message with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our associates. Are we active? Are we prepared? The Mission Church, as I've said hundreds of times, is here and ready to equip you on how to do that very thing, how to share the message of the gospel, how to help those who receive it to grow in their faith. I would encourage you, if you have anything at all working in you saying, I need to do something about that, to visit the next steps table and let Pastor Brett or whoever's there uh, put you in a particular direction. Finally, unbelieving friend. If, uh, if like me, uh, you find yourself, well, not like me now, but like I used to be, in a position where you do not believe, you do not trust, your faith is not in Christ, then you need to understand that God has already found you lacking. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's something that's already present with you. But there is good news. And the good news is that Jesus, his son, became flesh. He lived a sinless life we cannot live. He took our sins upon him. He paid the debt that we cannot pay. He rose from the dead with eternal life so that we who cannot have that life in our own merit can turn to him and receive the grace and the forgiveness that he made possible. If you have questions about that, if you want to talk about that, my contact information is on the screen. If you reach out, I'm going to reach back, and we're going to trust that God will meet us at the point of your need. Now, this really is the final part. So everybody, listen to this carefully. God's Word always stands. 
he gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, a dream about kingdoms that would come after Babylon. And we see with the death of Belshazzar and the capture of Babylon the city, with the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, it rose to take its place in God's unfolding plan. We can look back and we can see the bronze and we can see the iron. And we are now living in the iron mixed with clay era. God's plan cannot be thwarted. It cannot. His word can be trusted. So it is my hope and prayer that we believers, as we grow in our understanding of this, can live in the confidence that his word and the way it's been fulfilled throughout history brings. Father, I pray now that you will take the things that have been shared today, whether the things that were shared in song or, or with um, our missionary friend or, or now in the message from the Word, that you'll take whatever you choose to take and that you'll use it in our lives corporately and individually to make a difference for your glory and for our benefit. Father, I know that there are people, either in this room or out in the Mission Cafe or online, who have a spiritual need, I pray that they would be willing to make that known and be willing to receive from you the help that they so desperately need. May they come forward. May they identify themselves. May they know that they will not be um, need. There will be no need to be ashamed, but they will be loved and cared for as is proper and according to your will. So, Father, do your work in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.